0: Welcome to See, Here Speak podcast, episode 37. I'm excited to be back at it, hosting the podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Minnie Bridges about all things response to intervention, which is commonly referred to as RTI. We talk about the difference between MTSS and RTI, the history of RTI, and the benefits and challenges of implementing RTI in schools, and just a lot more. Even though I'm back, I do have a few more guest hosted episodes that I'll be sharing soon. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out our website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts for wherever you are listening. That can help others to find the podcast. Thank you so much. Welcome to See, Here Speak podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Mindy Bridges about response to intervention, and I'll have Mindy start by introducing herself.
1: I'm Mindy Bridges. I am a speech language pathologist and also an assistant professor at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, prior to the, my position at um, KUMC, I was a research scientist at KU for about six years. I um, have research interests in the um, area of language development, language and reading development and disorders. I have a particular interest in RTI. Um, have worked quite a bit on that, and I also in the past served as an RTI consultant for a large school district in the um, in Missouri in the Kansas City metro area. So I have quite a bit of experience um, working with practitioners, teachers, SLPs, administrators on how to implement RTI and, and kind of problem solving. So.
0: Oh, it's so good to be back to the podcast with you, Mindy, because we've known each other for so long. What was it, 2001 or 2002? We first met when you started the doctoral program with Hugh, and I was his student already, and yeah. we've just known each other for a long time and have lots of experiences on grants and papers and have a new grant, uh, which we may talk about at some point uh, together. So it's it's good to be back with you in particular.
1: I'm I'm so happy to see your, your face. You look
0: great. And
1: um, our first meeting, by the way, we talked about grad school, but we also talked about books for I think 30. Oh minutes. yes.
0: Absolutely. I remember and were we at Applebee's? I remember it was we're like at, a chain. We were <laughs> at Applebee's in like in Kansas City on the way to Lee <laughs> Summit. Yeah, I think so. Yep. I'm I'm picturing it was like an appetizers or a Chili's, but it was sure. it was a memorable event. And I'm so excited that we're still here um, being able to talk about this. So cool. And that we're still working together. It's great. I know. Well, I'm glad to have you here talking about response intervention. I think we'll start out very basic and just have you uh, tell the listeners, what is response to intervention? You know, what's the history behind response to intervention or RTI?
1: Sure. So um, I'll talk a little bit first about what RTI is, response intervention is, and then I'll kind of talk a little bit about the history and, and, and where it came from. But first, just to, just to give a real basic overview of RTI, RTI is really a tiered system of um, instruction and assessment for, for students, for all students, right? And so RTI really is um, a way to try to provide both preventative intervention um, for students, but also a way to identify students who might be at risk. And I will talk a lot, by the way, about reading um, when I talk about RTI, because that's my world, that's my research, but I do think it's important for people to remember that RTI is also a framework that's used for math and other educational components. But again, my my discussion will all be based in reading because that's what I that's what I think about. Um, and so basically RTI is um, a tiered system and most people use three tiers. Now I've heard, I've seen in the past districts that you use up to five or six tiers, that seems pretty complicated, but typically it's a three tier system. The first tier or level, some people say level, but the first tier is general education. And so within general education, um, we're trying to provide quality instruction, quality evidence-based research instruction, research-based instruction to all students in the classroom. Um, And that quality evidence-based instruction is really key. And that's, I think, one of, we'll talk about that later, but I think that's one of the the best things that have been brought up um, with the advent of RTI. Within that tier one, there are screenings, typically three or four times throughout the year. These are quick Um, kind of screening measures to try to identify children who might be at risk for reading. Okay, so we're not talking about a diagnostic assessment. Um, We're talking about um, trying to find students who are at risk. Students who are deemed to be at risk for some sort of um, reading or learning um, problem then move to tier two. And tier two is typically a small group um, extra intervention. And what's important about this is that this intervention is additional so you shouldn't be providing this intervention um, during regular instruction time they should get all of the regular instruction that kids are getting in tier one but then that um tier two is an additional like usually 30 minutes but that varies widely depending on the needs of the child um, and in that in that tier two the intervention isn't necessarily really different right but it's more Okay, so it's more intense, it's more systematic, um, and intensity can be um, accomplished by adding more time, but it can op- also is accomplished by adding a smaller group, right, because in a smaller group, children have an opportunity to provide um, more input, you know, to to um, have more practice. For children, and during, um, <coughs> excuse me, during tier two, children are progress monitored somewhat frequently, and there's, you know, Lots of um, thoughts about how frequently children should progress be progress monitored, but typically it's weekly or every other week, and. Um, the response to that really targeted instruction is watched very carefully and for students that are um, make good progress so a lot of times we see maybe kindergartners or first graders go to to tier two and after a really good couple months of good intensive intervention their progress monitoring shows that they're catching up and they go back to the regular classroom they don't need that intervention Um, there are kids of course that still struggle that intervention isn't enough and those. children typically are then provided with a a larger diagnostic battery and often are placed into special education where they're seen by um, someone that is more qualified Uh, I shouldn't say more qualified somebody who gives them more intensive intervention typically one on one, and often that intervention then does look different right so we do have. um, Some really good research coming from people like Doug Fuchs and Don Compton and other people that um, really are looking at those um, children in tier three the children who are really struggling um, and we're still working on it. That's it. Those are, those are tough kids to, um, address both with dyslexia, reading, word reading, or reading comprehension, but those kids need more and they need more intense services. So that's, um, kind of what RTI is in a nutshell.
0: And the history then would be that, um, in contrast before RTI, how is it different than what we see now? So, you know, for
1: years, we really used, um, the Royal, we, we used, um, the, um, Iq achievement discrepancy often so we had to see them um, children were only diagnosed um, with a reading disability and only provided any kind of intervention at all. If they there was a um, significant discrepancy between how and um, what they were achieving and what their IQ was and there are you know, a lot of um, there was a lot of dis- dissatisfaction with this so. Um, Way back in 1983, I always forget how to say his name, but Yisseldike, I think it was the name, had this really great seminal study looking at different ways to identify students. And that he found um, he or she, actually, I don't know if it's a he or she, found 17 different types of definitions of learning disabilities across the United States and tested kids in multiple kids, you know, qualified in one and not the other. Mm-hmm. I think a large percentage of kids qualified in one, in one of the definitions. And even um, about ten years past that, Heller and colleagues um, also um, talked a lot about kind of an RTI type of approach. So they talked a lot about um, measuring a child's potential and how they responded to instruction, right? So this has been around, you know, around this idea in education for a long time, but it really wasn't until 2004 with the reauthorization of IDEA that it was actually put into law that you did not have to use a discrepancy model. So they didn't specifically say you had to use an RTI model but it opened the door for people to use other ways to identify children. Um, that discrepancy model really um, had lots of challenges including kind of because of um, the way cycle, um, IQ tests are being and because of some, some statistical properties, kids often weren't identified until third or fourth grade well, I mean, hopefully everybody on this um, podcast knows how important early intervention is. And if we're waiting until third or fourth grade for students to really get the extra reading help, um, you've just lost so much ground, right? And kids by that time are unmotivated. And, and not only are they unmotivated, but teachers you know, kind of have kind of negative um, thoughts about how this child might respond. So there's just kind of this um, host of, of, of negative problems that come from waiting that long.
0: Yeah, so you're led me right to the next question is to think about the benefits of RTI compared to that approach and and also just thinking even as someone who looks at a lot of data like you do you know, in the past, it sounds like that, you know, there's this kind of one time point of measurement, you either qualify for services, or you don't. And then you have to wait a whole another year, or maybe two years. Whereas with RTI, you're really looking at the growth over time. And the growth is what's predicting whether you need those services more intensively. So if you have a lot of growth in our in tier two, like you said, then maybe you don't need those that that tier three or IEP level services, you would go back into the general classroom be continue to be monitored. But if you have a flat line, even with that instruction. Instruction or very little growth with that tier two extra instruction, boy, that's a sign that you are on the more severe end that you need to have the um, intervention that's more tailored directly to you, the individualized education plan. So what are the benefits of RTI then?
1: So I think um, there's a lot in my eyes, there's a lot of benefits and we'll talk, I think about challenges too, because there are some challenges as well. But I think one of the most important things that I see, um, as beneficial coming from the RTI um, framework movement is the emphasis on good quality evidence-based tier one instruction. I can't emphasize enough how much I've seen a shift in, um, so I was a school-based SLP um, for years before I went back and got my a PhD, and I was always interested in literacy. And I remember children who were struggling with reading, kind of the general education teachers were kind of like, these are your kids, or these are the reading specialist kids. Um, <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of talk about what could be done in the classroom. And I'm not bashing teachers, teachers are amazing. Sometimes teachers are using um, curricula that are not evidence based, right? In fact, we know that teachers are often using um, curricula that are. Um, espouse ideas that are actually opposite of what research should, um, should do. So I think one of the things that I saw was just this really emphasis on choosing and evident, like spending a lot of time um, looking at the evidence related to tier one curricula. And um, so when I was a um, RTI consultant in schools, one of my jobs this was in 2006 i think so this district or 2008 maybe and this district was just starting to implement rti and they you know that every school was at a different place right and the administration was kind of letting each school kind of find their own footing and i remember one school they i went to go visit them and they were so excited to start tier two right they had like pulled all these you know materials and done all these things and i looked at their their data and their kindergarten and first grade over 55 percent of their children were at risk on dibbles and i said oh nope we're not you you can't do two like we're not doing any type of tier two for at least a year your job this year is to really firm up your kindergarten and first grade and that's the only grades I'm. you know that's all you can do <laughs> kindergarten first grade and you're really going to emphasize um tier one general education instruction. Um, And they were, you know, at first, I think it was really disappointing to them because they had pulled all these great, you know, supplemental materials. But you know, two years later, if I remember correctly, their um, at-risk levels were about 30, which is a little bit high but for the school that I was in. But still, it was so much better. And they had really emphasized that tier one. So for me, that's one of the most important um, benefits. Um, I also think There's a benefit in that. I think with the advent of the RTI framework, there's kind of a whole school feeling. Like it's just like what I said before, all of the kids are, everybody's responsible for all of the kids, right? And I saw um, administrators because of all the talk about data and about, using data to inform instruction and inform kids, you know, when kids should move out of tier one, tier two. I think the emphasis on using data to make decisions, I've never seen, I had never seen the levels of conversation in like um, MTSS meetings or whatever you call your, you know, your meetings and and administrators were involved, reading specialists were involved in schools that were more um, progressive SLPs were involved, which, Mm -hmm. you know, they should be, we should be involved in those decisions and those discussions but I really think that that those are two of I think the most important pieces is, is um, improving it tier one instruction and also using data and using and talking about data and using it in a meaningful way, um, which I think is just really, um, really amazing.
0: It, you just really hit on the data part, I think is so critical, like you said, because the, you know I was in a similar situation when I would work in schools is that it was kind of an us versus them situation. It was like, there's general education, there's a budget, there's training, there's special education. And it was, mm-hmm. if this kid isn't doing well in my classroom, that's a special education problem. And there wasn't this integration. I think one thing I've you know seen also looking at so much data is you start to see that it's in a continuum. It's not an us versus them. It's just a continuum of kids from, you know, really doing well to not doing so well and understanding and seeing that normal distribution play out, then you can start to see that there is this gray area of kids. It's not just an us or them. There's kids who are in the subclinical who kind of don't quite qualify, but could qualify later. Um, And so you do see this range. And I think seeing the range really highlights that everyone is responsible for every kid. So special educators have a lot to say about practices that could happen in the classroom. General educators have so much to say about what can happen with kids who are struggling. And everyone, you know, gets, uh, you know, brings in their expertise for these interprofessional teams. That's kind of one of the big benefits I see too of RTI is that approach as opposed to the us or them. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your work with Schools and working on these models. What does it take to develop a school-based plan for literacy instruction? What are the what are the components you see are just really critical for a school to implement a successful RTI program? what does it mean to have success?
1: Right. Um, well, first, the first two things are time and patience. Mm-hmm. Um, I you you have totally. to be patient, but also you have to have time. I, I, the thing that I love about educators all you know teachers, speech pathologists, administrators we want to do what's right for children and we want like most educators embrace change right so when when they learn about when RTI was kind of coming about um everybody wanted to do they were all in they wanted to do it all and you just you can't you can't do that it it, it has to be a thoughtful process and I like people to start small so besides time and patience you have to have leadership and staff buy-in I think that's crucial I um when I was Um, working as this consultant, I kind of developed, I'm so mad I wasn't a researcher then because I had so so much data that I did not keep. I developed a survey, kind of a readiness survey for RTI to see where a school was at, and that really helped me decide um, if they were kind of ready to start in or if we needed just some time to just do a lot of professional development and, you know, discussions. Um, I thought that, so that was um, really helpful. I think schools need to have quality tier one. So that's another piece that everybody, you know, needs to have, whether it's reading, whether it's math, um, whatever, whatever you're um, thinking about in terms of an RTI framework, you need to have a good quality tier one. Um, I think there needs to be lots of thoughtful discussions about screening and progress monitoring. So I think there needs to be some good decisions about, um, uh, screening measures that have good psychometric properties. Um, the, uh, what is it now the National, I always forget, I think National Center on Intensive Interventions have tool charts now that they've um, reviewed a lot of different uh, measures related to math and literacy. And they, t- they give you really specific information on what grades, what, what um, aspects are being used, but also the reliability, the validity, sensitivity, specificity. So I think thinking about your screening measures, what measures, but also how often you want to use them and what data like what like how how low does a child have to score before you are able to provide them intervention and it's so funny everyone thinks that's like a like a set in stone number i think rti people always say you know 30% of kids should be getting intensive intervention i think it relates to what you're, what's happening in your school right so one if you have funds to to support all kids who are at risk great If you don't, that's the kids you're serving, right? So if you only have funds to serve 20% of your kids at risk, that's what, you know, that's who you're going to serve. But I think thinking, making those plans, um, but I also think, and this sometimes is hard, so I said that educators, you know, embrace um, learning and embrace doing new things, but sometimes I think we're also really adverse to change when we've put a lot of time and effort into a system, but this isn't, like RTI now we've had some pretty hardcore research in RTI for probably the last 15 years, you know, really hard research. Things are continually changing. I am continually reading really great research from people like Amanda Vanderhaven or other people about screening and measurement that maybe change, you know, what I thought was the most appropriate way to do things. And that's really hard for people, you know, teachers and administrators were like, well, we have just implemented the system. And so I'm not saying... I do think sometimes we change too much, but I do think you have to be ready to change with the research that's available to you. And that sometimes is hard. So, having a team in place that can really make those decisions um, and have the expertise to make those decisions. You know, larger school districts often have somebody who's really good with um, statistics and looking at data, that person should be involved. You know, always, um, because I think some of the larger school districts um, that I've seen that do the best job with RTI are actually using their own. They they um, have enough data over years that they can use their own norms to to um, figure out at risk, right? So instead of using national norms, they can say, well, within our district, this is the cutoff point because this is what kids in our in our district should or should not be doing, and I think that can be really
0: powerful. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And I think you talk about the change. I think there's that normal distribution we see in uh, teachers and administrators, educators, researchers scientists people just in general like of how likely they are to want to do change right so it's Mm -hmm. like some are really resistant some are like let's do it i know that this year in the schools i've worked with i'm sure you've seen it too wow talk about change with covid i mean it has been it has forced a flexibility which has been you know painful and also probably insightful at least it has for us in our districts too is you know, just uh, realizing how flexible you have to be and how, I mean, there's nothing like the flexibility caused by a pandemic, right? um, It's so crazy, but I, I really, I really appreciate your focus on the growth, you know, that has to occur. Like it almost seems like if a school district wants to implement RTI, they really need like a 10 year plan and it needs Mm -hmm. to be systematic and kind of build in change and adaptability to new research, but also building in that idea that it's just going to take a long time to move Mm -hmm. mountains, you know, like it takes a long time and and every, maybe within the 10 years, different aspects of RTI are going to come online. Like you said, like first, it's got to be about kind of assessing the situation, getting tier one, but then other aspects are coming online. And I appreciate you bringing up the tools chart. So I think you knew this, but you know, I was part of the original uh, team that created Mm -hmm. the tools chart. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I remember about that team, which gosh, it's now been almost 15 years, maybe mm-hmm. between 10 and 15 years ago, and we've been doing this. Um, and I'm so glad you gave it a shout out because it, it's such a good resource and it gets, gets better every year. And I can't take credit for it only as I'm a consultant. So I am you know one of the that, people that review the tests uh, and give some feedback. But one, one thing I remember is sitting in a room and for a whole day with like 15 people trying to think of the good definition for screening, which I bring this story up because it's just not set in stone. Like everything is debatable. And I think that's one thing that that you bring up about the change part is that everything changes. And there's always, if you have 15 academics in a room, just like if you had 15 teachers in a room, you're going to have 15 different of, of views of points. And I think that, uh, yeah, using the tools chart and you know, uh, really thinking thoughtfully about the measurement also such a critical part that you bring up, which I think is, is so important, which is a oh, nice segue. Oh, good. Did you want to say something? I, yeah. Really segue? Yes.
1: Yeah. So with the tools chart, just so that our, the listeners know there's also interventions and I actually review for oh, those. Yes. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. And so there's, um, there's besides the tool, the screening tools, there's also a whole, um, bunch of um, interventions that uh, both math and language literacy and more like word reading type um, interventions. And they are also, um, they go through a rigorous um, screening process or process um, before they're allowed to be up there. So if you're looking for an intervention, so um, I do have a lot of schools uh, still, um, but for sure when I was a consultant that asked, like, you know, we got some money available and we want, like, what's the one best, you know, intervention? well there's not. And so then I would talk about like things need to be systematic, explicit, you know, have a scope and sequence. But I did point a lot of people to that chart um, to say this is a really good place to look for interventions and look to see what um, what they have. So I think that's a really um, great place. The Florida Center for Reading Research, their website also has a really great overview of different um, uh, interventions. I mean, that's that is a website that I always um, give to every, anytime I give a, a talk to to schools or SLPs or anybody related to literacy, I always um, give the Florida Center for Reading Research, their website, a shout out, it's really great. But um, yeah, the tools chart, uh, has interventions as well so sorry to interrupt but I wanted to make oh, sure to tell great. you that because it's such a great resource yeah
0: I always forget that too since I was so focused on the assessment part of the tools chart so that's really helpful yeah. and I think it's you know you and I both have talked um we're so committed to translational science and really thinking about the practice to research to practice gap. so this is kind of two-way so I think too uh, you know, listeners should know that, that there's lots of um, resources out there to evaluate these things for you. So you don't have to be the one that goes out and does all of that legwork. We're really trying to have resources out there and the government funds a lot of different mechanisms as well to have resources to say, what is the evidence uh, for uh, or against uh, intervention that you might use and and trying to give that approach of saying, you know, is it best for your, your uh, school or not? Yep. Um, And that does lead me to think more about, you know, as thinking about assessment, thinking about interventions. Uh, Do you think that RTI does a good job in the language realm? So you mentioned reading, but should we expand RTI to language? What would that look like? Uh, You know, what are some of the issues around that? So
1: that's such a hard question for me. I mean, of course, I think it should because I'm a language person, right? And language. Um, in and of itself is so important for social, for academics, for, you know, everything. But also we know that language is so highly related to reading um, reading comprehension success. Um, and I've been thinking about this a lot. It's, it's tricky because uh, I think that RTI so far has been most successful, the RTI framework has been most successful in the literacy world in looking at the discrete skills, like word, re- things related to word reading, right? Because, um, there are things that you, you know, alphabet knowledge, there's a disc, there's a finite number of letters and in, in, in sounds, right? And once you learn those, you can kind of move forward. Um, language is so broad, there's so many components, you know, children can have deficits in vocabulary and syntax or grammar, in morphology, the small pieces of, you know, speech, they can have trouble with um, inferencing, narrative language, there's so many, um, it's so broad, we're really behind in Progress monitoring measures. We're really behind in interventions. Not only, I mean, definitely in interventions that work one-on-one. Right. We have lots of kids who are language disorder that you know we know we're probably not going to cure them of that. Right. Kids with maybe developmental language disorders. But we um, and there are some interventions that have shown growth. But a lot of times they're really intensive. They're one-on-one. They're delivered by an SLP. Um, so I definitely think we should, but I think we're really far from being super successful. What I will tell you, I'm what I've been excited about is the work by with um, Trina Spencer and Doug Peterson um, with their cubed, um, I think their dynamic language, dynamic measurement systems. I kind of forget it's gone through a little bit of transitions or different changes, but they have this great um, body of work, you know, years of research. They're both excellent researchers and they have this body of work talking about narrative language, right? And we know that narrative language is related to, um, good reading comprehension. It's also narrative language is something that speech pathologists just have worked on in general as a part of a language goal. And they're finding some really great results on, um, with their intensive interventions related to narrative. And they have that really great paper that came out a couple years ago that actually showed that their narrative intervention actually, um, uh, expanded over to writing they didn't uh, they didn't actually um, work on writing um, and when I mean writing I don't mean handwriting but you know kind of written work. Um, the narrative intervention um, expanded over to like kids making gains on, on writing and they also have this really great set of measures. they have screening measures they have progress monitoring measures that are now equated I believe for quite a few grades. Um, and when I say equated, a lot of times you have to be careful when you choose a progress monitoring, system, you want to make sure that the progress monitoring measures are equated, meaning that they're all um, either equally dif- difficult or equally easy so that you're not you don't see dips or highs and lows in performance just based on this, you know, one progress monitoring measure that was really hard that particular week, or you want to know that they've thought about it across a year so that they're appropriate, you know, at that time, they have put so much work into that that I do have more confidence that we are, we're going to get there, but it's hard. Like, I don't have a lot of really great answers. Um, I'm not, I don't know that we have enough evidence yet that um, a tier two, that kids who have language disorders are going to go to a tier two and get a little bit of small group intervention and move back, but we might, you know, I, I think we just have, we well, you and I, we can talk about that later. We're looking at that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, I think, um, I think that it's something that I have confidence that we're gonna find out more about. And I think there's some things we can do to start, but I, I do think we're, we're not as far along as we are with skills related to word reading.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and definitely too, I, uh, the work showing that, uh, that measuring, the current measures are missing children who have language problems yes. in the future. So we know that children have, that there's groups of children that have language problems, but they do well in word reading or yep. well enough, I'll say for sure. And then later on they struggle and they've been called you know, late emerging poor readers. Uh, but what we know now, uh, based on the work you and I've done and many others, that these poor readers later on, they're not late emerging, they always had problems. But we are the measures we use didn't pick up on those problems. So we definitely have measurement issues that we need to resolve. But I agree. Uh, Trina, uh, Spencer and Doug Peterson have done some amazing work over decades. This is like decades of work they've done. And it's and the other thing I love about it is, you know, it's basically what we say about uh, some of the LARC work we've done. It's prepaid. I mean, they did. It's free. Most of yeah. the work they have is online and free. And Trina has a toolkit, uh, Trina's toolbox, I believe it's yep. called, uh, we can link in the show notes and resources that, uh, you, know, you know, it's not just the assessment, but looking at some of the interventions and what yep. we know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's free online because it was paid for by tax dollars. So you prepaid yep. it. And uh, I think more people need to know about those kinds of resources. I do too. I also do want to give a shout out to
1: you and to also, you know, our former advisor, Hugh Katz, who you both are doing some work looking at um, trying to find those kids um, uh, who have DLD or have language problems early, right? So you both are doing some great work that I'm really excited to see um, how that comes out. So uh, I think there's, I, I'm so excited about everything, right? So like my to do, my to read pile is, and I say, pile, because honestly, I do keep digital files, but things I really want to read, I'm yeah. old, I still have my pile <laughs> of papers, because I don't know why, it's terrible, but I'm admitting <laughs> that, um, but anyway, uh, there's so many things happening right now, and I yeah. think what's really exciting is that, you know, people are starting to understand, do you remember, I remember when I first started going to, to um, SR, which is a National Reading Conference, right, and I would say I was a speech-language pathologist, and people are like, "But why are, Why are you here, right? I mean, like, like even with like leaders in our in the reading field, you know, like Hugh Katz and you know Shelley Gray does great stuff, and Laura Justice does great stuff, and all these people, and you, like, even with that, now it's I feel like it's very, it's kind of um, people understand the the role that SLPs have, which I think is so great because we are in this unique, great position to do a lot of things in an RTI type framework.
0: I think that's a good point. I remember the first time I went to the triple SR conference with Hugh and was looking around going, who's an SLP? And he'd be like, "Uh, there's no one that's an SLP here. At that point, it really was just him Um, and maybe a few others, but they happened to not be at that conference. And I was just blown away by that. But of course, you know, the history being that our field has many topics to cover, and now we, you know, have people who specialize more in the literacy aspect, and we know that's in our scope of practice. So it's it's pretty exciting to see that change uh, occur. And I think you're right. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to language, but we're part of that work, which we'll get to we for are. sure. Yeah. Before we do that, I do want to hit on something that you mentioned. You mentioned an MTSS meeting. So what is the difference between MTSS and RTI?
1: Right. So I'm going to start with the similarities and then go to the differences. Okay. And I will tell you that there's, there's lots of, I think this is one of those um, terms, you know, dichotomy terms where some people feel like the differences are pretty minimal and some people feel like the differences are huge, but they're both multi-tiered systems.
0: Oh, and w- let's just say what MTSS oh, is. First oh, yeah. Multi- I don't think I said it.
1: Yeah. Multi-tiered systems of support. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. So that's what MTSS stands for in our RTI response to intervention. Okay. They're both multi-tiered systems. Um, they both have a inses- assessment, instruction, intervention as very important components and really intertwined, right? So the, the assessment or the screenings or whatever you use are, um, in both cases are very highly, um, intertwined with instructional decision-making and they both, um, really um, highlight the importance of using evidence-based practice. Okay. The difference is that really, I like to think of MTSS as almost an umbrella term, okay, where RTI is a framework that kind of fits underneath it. Um, RTI is really a framework to look at an academic type of intervention, right, so math, language, if you want to talk about that reading for sure. Um, MTSS is integrated in that it looks at not only kind of those academic um, sections, but also behavior, right? So positive behavioral support, I think PBIS, is that right? Um, But it also, when people think about MTSS, I think they also expand it to looking at at the school, um, parents, the community. Okay. So I think there's a little bit of a a difference. Um, MTSS um, includes things like professional development for teachers. Okay. Um, It includes things on um, helping um, uh, support adults, um, teachers or educators, um, supporting kids. So it's just a little bit broader, but they both are um, systems that are um, utilizing a tiered system of support to try to provide prevention and um, identification of children. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of um, school districts are, are moving away from kind of the RTI um, language and going to MTSS because it, it, it encompasses everything. Okay. But RTI is, is just a framework. It's one way to, um, address academic, um, difficulties within an MTSS framework. Does that, does that help?
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it leads right into thinking about challenges that we might be facing and we are facing and implementing these multi-tiered systems like RTI and MTS. I imagine MTS, might be almost a response to some of the challenges of RTI being too focused just in one area. Mm-hmm. So MTSS, it might be kind of a way that RTI has grown. Is that what you would say? Yeah, I
1: think so. And I also think there's somewhat of a, it seems like MTSS is a term that's used more um, by, by educators and, and by a district, because again, they're thinking about mm-hmm. um, uh Um, impacting children within a whole system, right? Whereas RTI um, is a framework that I think we researchers use a lot because we're looking at very specific components of um, screening or very specific Mm -hmm. components of how progress monitoring works or how an intervention might work. It's not to say that there aren't researchers researching Mm -hmm. kind of the larger system, but I do think that that's one of the kind of, from what I see uh, when I go to a conference most people are talking about RTI, RTI excuse me, um, RTI framework. Mm-hmm. Um, when I go and speak um, for districts or like large um, uh, educational organizations, um, they are asking me to talk about NTSS, which you know I typically, because my knowledge and my research is kind of within the RTI framework, I'll talk about it all, but then I'll hone in on what um, I'm interested in. But again, they are both still tiered systems of support. They are a way to provide early intervention, preventative intervention um, of some sort, whether it's behavior, whether it's academic. um, And they both are, the goal of both of those is to to help children um, who are struggling
0: succeed. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's really helpful to clarify those terms because I definitely see them thrown out. And it's helpful to think about even who uses those terms and why, I think it's, it's very helpful. So what are some of the challenges Uh, that you see uh, in in implementing these systems?
1: One of the things that I find really interesting, this is a weird challenge, but it's one that I think about a lot. Um, I think sometimes there's a disconnect between how researchers think about RTI and how practitioners, educators out in the field think about it. I think when you think about RTI, people who are out in the trenches doing the really hard work, which by the way, shout out to teachers this year, (sighs) they deserve every kudos and the, they always deserve it, but mm-hmm. this last year has just mm-hmm. been something. So anyway, yeah. I think be, they're, when they think of RTI, they think of it as a preventative measure. They think about providing extra intervention, right? That's that's the whole point of it is like to to do that. In the in the research world, I actually think, we definitely think about that, right? We're thinking about interventions, but we're thinking about RTI as, as a process of identification. Absolutely. So so when I, for instance, yes. um, I was part of a, um, a research study um, that Hugh Katz and Diane Nielsen, who was an um, educator, a really great professor at KU, um, they had a, we had a grant looking at um, response intervention for kindergarten children, and it was a research study, right? So there was, you know, some protocols in place, but we developed a narrative and vocabulary intervention. and it was so hard for the people that we hired to do the, the extra intervention. They wanted to do more, right? Like they were like, if I just, could I keep, you know, Johnny five more minutes and do a little bit more with him. I'm like, no, because that's extra. And so what is hard for teachers, they, I would find out like, so when I was this consultant and I'd find out that, you know, I'd be working with this, the, you know, this, this group, this small group, like a, a specialist who was working with this small group. And she'd be, I'd say like, Oh my gosh, Johnny is making amazing progress. How's that happening? She's just like, well, I've been keeping Johnny 15 minutes extra three times a week. And I'm like, I said, by himself, she said, yeah. And I said, isn't that great? And I'm like, well, it's great that Johnny's doing better, but you're giving him tier three, like, and, and no one's paying for like, you do you know what I mean? So, yes. but she, and she was so excited and uh, that's so great. She wanted this kid to make progress and he was making progress, but he needed really a lot of extra intensive services. Yeah. And so he should have probably been in tier three. So that's one of, I think the hardest challenges is just kind of the disconnect mm-hmm. between what it, the, the the purpose of it. Right. So I think that's been really hard. And I think that goes into kind of In RTI, when you think about tier two, there's kind of a problem solving protocol Mm -hmm. or a standard protocol. And what that means is the problem solving protocol kind of for tier two intervention is you make lots of changes, right? So you have a small group and depending on how they're doing, you make changes as you go to to kind of boost their their, um, performance. And in theory, that sounds great, right? Like we want, that's what we want to do. But what's difficult about that is it's hard to decide when it's too much. And when you need to be giving them extra, whereas a standard protocol is you use a pretty set um, curricula, right? So that doesn't mean you're not individualizing intervention, right? It doesn't mean that you're not providing prompts and scaffolding, but you're not adding way extra time. You're not going above and beyond. I always say don't, in tier two, you shouldn't be using heroic efforts. Like if you need to be using heroic efforts to get through it, they need to be going to tier three. And so that's kind of, that's that those are challenges with that because the, I think there's like a struggle between wanting to help mm-hmm. the kids but sometimes that help isn't actually helping in the long run because mm-hmm. they you're hiding the fact that this child really needs a lot um so I think that's a really big struggle
0: I think we're still Can becoming, I comment on that Mindy yeah, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I, I think that you bring up such a good point about the kind of the focus for researchers versus practitioners and I think about this a lot too in terms of the RTI framework we bring, we have RTI and it was for a reason. It was to help improve the early identification. That was the original reason. Of course, then it also helps prevent problems in the future. It supports all children. There's all these benefits. But when we talk about language, for instance, I've been thinking a lot about how maybe for different kids too, the RTI system isn't something we have to be bound to. So for instance, there could be kids with language impairment. We know language impairment can be identified accurately. Mm -hmm. I mean, accurate identification can occur in kindergarten. So then sometimes I think a lot, I think about what, you know, which kids would need RTI for language and which wouldn't like, which ones can just be identified and move straight to, to IEP status. Because what's the point in doing this, you know, response intervention when we already know they have a diagnosis. um, But that's kind of a, you know, that might seem kind of, wow, that's really thinking out of the box in terms of RTI. But in terms of our field, it's not because that's what we do. We assess. And then if they qualify, we put them in. And so I think it also is thinking, you know, RTI was created to solve the problem of waiting to see and making kids delay intervention uh, and that was because the measurements weren't good we know that the measurements are, weren't great early on so we had to do a response intervention cuz the initial measurement wasn't capturing the kids that struggled and there were too many people that that looked like they were struggling who weren't really mm-hmm. you know going to struggle later on so we had to do RTI to get the slope to see who's gonna grow and who's not. But with language, I don't know that we always need that. So I do think it's, it goes back to that flexibility. Like when is RTI needed for early identification and prevention and when is it not? And for what kids? So I think two things, first, you that's exactly that that idea
1: is, is kind of called smart RTI and I think oh. Don Compton and I think it was Don Compton and Doug Fuchs and some colleagues from from there that talked about how there might be oh, great. a group of kids that you do just move forward oh, cool. um, like the, these kids might be so low for whatever reason um, and you know low performing that that tier two probably just isn't enough and can we just fast track mm-hmm. these kids to tier three I, I did that that's, that's great yeah it's really cool Um, and I I do think, though, that when you say sometimes we need RTI and we don't, that can still happen in RTI. So, just because you're using a different measure, right, like, or a different way to make a decision, that still can be part of the RTI framework. You can just have different decision making points or different types of decisions. Um, Because I do think, and I think you're right, there's kids with language impairments Um, that, you know, we just aren't going to, they're not going to make that tier two progress in like 10 weeks or 12 weeks or even one semester. Um, And the same token, I think there's kids, you know, like those kindergarten kids who score really low at the beginning um, of kindergarten, even like through November, we used to spend a lot of time doing assessments with them, diagnostics, putting in them in intervention. And then by February, they got it and it might be because they never were exposed to you know formal instruction before which is fine they're in kindergarten but what this does is allow those kids to get that tier two intervention and make really good progress fast because you can make we know there's a lot of really good interventions now for letter id letter knowledge for um, word reading you know for most kids if you get them that um, early, they'll really make great progress. So, but I do think it's important to remember that even though your decision, even if you do something like smart RTI, where you do, you know, you fast track kids, that's still the RTI process. Mm-hmm. There's also people that talk about, um, gated, um, approaches, which I think is really cool. I think I'm going off topic a little bit, but no, I'd um, love to hear it. Yeah. Where you give, well, in fact, I, my dissertation, um, 500 years ago, was it kind of about that where you give all students a screening measure, right? Screening measures are meant to be quick. Whenever I see a school that has a screening measure and they're saying, oh, it's like 17 minutes to administer, that's not a screen, like that's that's so cumbersome, right? Uh, you give a screening measure like Ames Web or the or the Dibbles or one of the other, you know, great measures that um, can identify kids quickly. And then let's say that gives you 35, percent of the kids or 30 percent of the kids a lot of people are recommending giving another assessment that's not still a full diagnostic assessment maybe but maybe a subtest of something or something else that's a little bit more in depth a dynamic assessment so in my dissertation i gave a dynamic assessment of phonological awareness as a secondary screen and it really did what it did was weed out those kids who just needed Mm -hmm. like they just didn't understand the, the process right but they did well once they um understood how the testing worked Mm -hmm. and it turned out that those kids you know at the end of kindergarten really were the kids that were probably fine so that takes a little bit more time and it takes Mm -hmm. a secondary measure that's you know well developed but a lot of folks are suggesting doing that so that you you know use a screening measure to quickly weed out the kids that are actually great right these kids are going to be fine then you have this pool of kids who might be at risk you do something secondary that might take longer but you're not doing it to your whole classroom. You're just doing mm, yes. it to a certain subset of kids. And I think there's some, I think there's a lot of um, uh, promise for that for language kids, right? Yes. So doing something as a secondary screen with yes. language.
0: Yes. You know, I think we're, you, know, you said you might be off topic, but I actually think you're right on topic because my next question was how to overcome those challenges. But you've already talked, you've just talked about some of the ways like using gating approaches, as you mentioned from your dissertation, using dynamic assessment, um, you know, even thinking, you know, the smart RTI approach, that kind of thing. That seems like great ways to create a more flexible RTI approach to deal with this. And I do think you're right. Like, uh, with the language assessment work we've been working on with screening what we're finding is is that we can have really good confidence if a child passes our screen that they are okay so it, it almost what it does is it takes like 70 percent of the kids and says okay you're good and then it gives you a smaller set of kids to do those kinds of diagnostics on just like you mentioned if it's 30 percent of kids you're having to do some further testing on then that's a big difference from 100 so yes. it still is efficient and appropriate, I think, because in those 30% that are at risk, there's a lot of false positives, there just are. Sure. But then you can do some further testing to say, well, this kid actually didn't pass the language test because he didn't have the experience or he didn't know how to do the test or there are many reasons they can fail that don't relate to actual language ability. So that makes a lot of sense to me what you're mentioning. And I think that's part of it, but I wanted to get back to, I think you had another challenge you wanted to mention. And I wanna make sure we don't miss it.
1: Well- I think the other one is for me. One of the primary ones is who's who's providing tier two, and um, how you make that work, right? And so I do think you know some schools kind of have this universal RTI time where the whole school from like ten to ten thirty shuts down and and. Either you know regular regular education kids are getting some sort of enhancement or doing something else, and um, there's these tier two groups going on all over. And what that means is, kind of every person in the school is doing something. So you might have a um, this is maybe extreme, but you might have a music teacher doing you know something um, versus schools where they have the reading specialist or a teacher or the most highly qualified person do all of the intervention, but then. That's so hard for scheduling, right? And what I really see, and I've heard of a few districts doing this, and I'm so interested, um, and I would love to see more data, but I I think our future is having interventionists within a district who move, right? Who move around schools. So you're trained to be a, a, a literacy intervention specialist or a math intervention specialist or whatever, And you are really trained to develop this tier two intervention because it takes a lot of skills, right? It takes not only just behavior management and small Mm. group skills, but it takes being able to kind of choose appropriate interventions to group students appropriately, right? I think sometimes we're just grouping all kids who are at risk in second grade in one group, but this kid might have a fluency problem. These two might have reading comprehension and this child might not even know his letters yet. That's ridiculous, right? But that's what's happening. I think the future is kind of these group or what I would love the future to be is this group of kind of roving interventionists that are they're spe- that are trained to do this and what I think is really cool about that is I think we as a profession speech pathologists are would be great at that intervention because we know how to use data we know how to pick good interventions and curricula and and, and tailor that we know how to take progress monitoring data right we do that we teach our students, hopefully, to do that all the time. Um, And we have really good knowledge of how to scaffold and provide appropriate responses. I, like the, this happened like 15 years ago, but I will never forget sitting in a kindergarten tier two, part of my job was to watch interventions and not respond during them, but then provide the interventionist with support. And this interventionist was um, working on the letter G, the guh, the hard guh sound, right? And she asked children to name words that begin with "g," And she provided giraffe as one of the examples. Because again, right, like we know we kind of, as adults, we get our, um, we know that the the word begins with the letter G. And so that's just what we say, but that's not a hard guh sound. And I remember all of these kids sitting and looking at like, the, these really at risk kids were like, I could see them like, what, was what, what, what guh? giraffe, guh? but nobody said anything. Cause these are kids that are at risk. And so they, they trust the adults, right. Yes. They're not going to, and so that was so striking to me because that person didn't have, she had a pretty scripted program actually she was using, but she didn't have the foundational like knowledge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a, that is a really big, besides all the yeah. other things that we just don't know yet. I think trying to hone in on who is the most appropriate interventionist and how to give them the support and the training in the um, everything they need. I think, I, I think we might just need to
0: be looking at different service delivery type models at some point. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I know some of the districts I've worked with have used some of their, what we call here, Title I funds to hire and train uh, specialists in Tier 2, which I think it, in the districts I've worked with have been pretty successful. The one thing I've seen has been most successful is, in terms of that background training, is getting the whole district trained on the language foundation, like maybe through a letters training or something similar, Wilson, you know, something where they're all trained, because I also think you brought up this idea, which is so critical that tier two shouldn't be radically different than tier one. And so I think you're right about training these people in tier two, but my fear is that some districts, and I've seen this happen, they do a great training in tier two, but they don't connect it to tier one. So it almost seems like you need to have like twofold, like a training of everyone. And then take those, you know, tier two and really train them up. I I think that makes a lot of sense.
1: That's a real, that's a really great point because I have seen people in, in in like the secondary intervention, for instance, using a whole different letter, like, so, you know, the, um, the whole school might be using like animated literacy, right. Which has its own scope and sequence. And then in the tier two, they're using a different sequence right so i'm like you need to teach what they're like you need to emphasize what they're teaching in class so that's a great great point
0: yeah Yeah, i've seen that happen too i've totally seen it happen it's like they go into tier two it's radically different totally different everything's different and that's just hard to then integrate back in but I've also seen districts who do it so well where their tier two is just right in line with tier one and they'll say it's so nice for the kids too they're getting that integration like like you were taught yesterday now we're going to do more of that and then it's just such a nice integration Uh, but then that means that the tier two person has to be trained on also tier one and that connection so that's That's a tall order. Um, I know that in terms of overcoming challenges, one thing that you and I are passionate about is uh, implementation science and what that could look like. And uh, we've been working in our lab closely with districts and really thinking about, you know, it goes back to the MTSS versus RTI discussion. Like what does a researcher see versus the clinician? And we've been trying to work with districts and uh, work together in situ. So in the actual context, with uh, teachers and administrators and special educators and speech pathologists to, to see about solving the problems and implementing together and then keeping data, which is a very different approach than what I was trained on and I think what's typically done, right? So um, I think that, you know, your experience, you've, you've been on ASHA's committee looking at implementation science. So I'd love for you to talk about how you think implementation science might help also with these challenges in a similar way.
1: So I'm not on the ASHA committee, just to clarify. Oh, okay. I, I, I do. You
0: were. I'm not, but I
1: do meet with uh, monthly with a group of oh, fantastic. field that fantastic. talk about implementation science. So yes, perfect. Um, I, you know, implementation science is so interesting. It's something that I think, like, as a um, as a term, was new to me about five years ago when I took my position. And I teach an implementation science uh, seminar for our SLPD students. Uh, but then when I started learning about it, I was like, well, this is what, this is kind of what I've been doing. Like, this is the kind of research that I want to be doing all my life. But then what it did was helped me understand, like, how to do it better and how to think about it better. Basically, implementation science is just trying to think about how we can take these, these practices that we know are evidence-based. And because that's important, right? Implementation science has to be based on pushing forward. Um, programs, interventions, whatever it is, professional development systems that are, have been shown to be evidence-based, right? So, you know, you don't wanna be pushing out something that you don't know if it's good or not, but how to get that out to um, a broader context right so if you have this tightly controlled research study and then you you found that something works and multiple people there's converging evidence that this works how can we get more districts to do it or how can we do it with this certain population and how can we help make adaptations right because adaptations are going to happen when you take something to the field because life is not perfect schools are messy and schools are different the school district is different than this so how can we implement things and make adaptations i think what we used to do when we scaled up is we just made adaptations as we went just haphazardly, right? Maybe took data on it. Well, what implementation science does is you plan for that. You plan for that. So you might do um, needs assessments first, and then you might use a framework to help you figure out how to do you know, this next piece. So it really is, it's, it's a really planful way to take our research and move it forward. It's so exciting. It's hard work. Um, it's um, where as a field, I think, um, behind um, more like public health and nursing. They've been, you know, when you read a lot of the um, articles related to implementation science, um, and a lot of the frameworks come from those two fields, but we're moving. And I think a lot of us have been doing it. We just didn't really know, we didn't know what it was, right? So I do know, um, I think there's a special edition, there's um, there's going to be one of the actual journals that's tackling, um, well, I know there is, um, in the, it, tackling some of the, um, work that our field has done in implementation science. We do have some folks like um, Natalie Douglas and um, uh, Megan. uh, um, I just lost her
0: name. uh, Oh, um, Megan Sleep. Yeah, I I never know if I'm saying it right, too. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Sorry, sorry, Megan. I can always see
1: your your, um, name. But anyway, lots of people. There's lots of people in our field. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, I think Trina Spencer is actually the chair of the CRISP committee now. Oh yes, I Ashley think you're right. right. Yeah. That you're talking about one of my colleagues at KU, Megan mm-hmm. Davidson. Um, I There's a lot of us that are really interested mm-hmm. in this um, because there's, we're starting it. We are a young field too, in terms mm-hmm. of research, mm-hmm. right? And we have so many areas that we can cover in research. I do think we're starting to get to the point where we have a lot evidence-based practices mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we know, especially in reading, right? Mm-hmm. We know that mm-hmm. there's some things that work and we aren't seeing it happen. So I think it's really cool that we're starting to really push mm-hmm. into that. And I think, yeah, you and I, I think we're, we've been dabbling in this for years without knowing. Yes. It. Well, I think our LARC, <laughs>
0: the Lark project was yes. implementation science um, a okay. uh, hybrid approach, but you know, we definitely have been doing it without the framework. So it's nice to have the framework. And, and I think too um, with our clinical background, I think one thing that is most exciting for me and implementation science is the voice of the clinician and hearing, you know, through these needs assessments, working so closely with those who are on the ground, as opposed to creating something in the lab and then expecting it to work Mm -hmm. in a situation that is not as controlled as a lab situation. And and so that's pretty exciting. And a shout out to Rosanna Komosedu, one of my colleagues who's implement, you know interested in implementation science and has been doing this implementation Thursday on Twitter, where she's highlighting work in implementation. And uh, uh, Crystal Alonzo and, and Rosanna led a paper from our team that hopefully will be in that special issue uh, focused on some of the collaborations that we have and what we've been up to. So it is pretty exciting. I think it's something that uh, will really help with this, you know, uh, tackle some of these challenges in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm mindful of our time. I want to ask you two final questions uh, that I ask every guest. So first one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? I mean, I feel
1: like, you know, the answer to this one. Don't <laughs> I think I do. <laughs> so I am, am so grateful and so excited Um, to be working on a NIH funded project with Tiffany and Shane Piasta from the Ohio State. Also, Candace Fleming is an investigator. She's a great methodologist here at KU. Um, And this um, project is looking at um, taking that LARC um, curricula that we developed. I know you've talked about it before in your Mm -hmm. podcast. It's Mm -hmm. a language focused curricula um, for um, preschool through third grade. We took the first grade curricula and we are adapting it to be used for a tier two. So it's a very language focused tier two. We have, we'll be um, starting this fall. I'm in the hot and heavy process of doing all the, um, the, uh, kind of uh, um, modifying the lessons to be appropriate for tier two. So I'm working hard on that, but then we'll be um, identifying kids in Ohio and Boston this fall. And we'll have a subset of the kids that are at risk that will be um, identified as having DLD. And so we're gonna see how this tier two intervention uh, works for them and also fit kind of the growth and in the intervention, kind of how that looks after, um, I think we're following into third grade, is that mm-hmm. right? Yes, yeah. Um, this is something that when we were like the second year in LARC, I was already thinking, we, this needs to be a tier two, like this needs to be a tier two. And uh, I'm so thankful that we, um, the three of us sat down and and did this work or wrote this grant and we were shocked to get it really quickly. Um, but I remember uh, telling, my husband, that this was my dream grant. And I have, I love my grants that I'm on currently, but this is, um, this intervention and this work is something that I've really thought about for a long time. So, uh, that's what I'm most excited about. I just wish I had a magic, um, fairy to kind of get some of this work done this summer.
0: It's already July. I know whenever. it's crazy. I, the time is flying by. I agree with you. It's a dream grant and a great dream team. And really your, your pilot work early on, as you mentioned, looking at you know adapting this tier one curriculum to a small group, that pilot work you did at KU, that's the work that I think was the linchpin in getting the grant, showing some of those effects early on. So it's pretty exciting. And I know you've been working with Maura, Corinne, who did the, the similar kind of adaptation during the pandemic. and. from the Lark. Yeah. So it is, it's so exciting. It's great to be able to work with your friends. That's really fun. Um, Yeah. And the last thing is uh, what's your favorite book from childhood or now? And I know you and I love to read, especially you, you are probably the most ferocious reader that I know Uh, you're my book recommender. So (laughs) what do you, what books do you like?
1: Well, this was such a hard question for me. And I just, here's what I did is I thought about eight, my daughter. Do- I have an eight year old. My daughter just turned eight. And every year my mom and I, since she was born for Christmas, we each give her one book that mm-hmm. is like one of our, you know, favorite books. So my mom gave her little women when she was mm-hmm. um, little, I've given her Heidi and all these, the book that I'm so excited to read to her. I think we're going to start this fall is um, ballet shoes. So do you know the dancing mm-hmm. shoes series by Noel no, Streetfield? I don't. Um, I, it's a great book I remember reading it when I was a kid I have a really hard like worn copy of it and it but it's still out in print and I couldn't pick one the other one is a little princess um, by Frances Burnett I like that movie and the book both so I, maybe not my favorite books although they are very beloved but like they're books that I can't wait to read with my um, daughter so that's that was fantastic such, I stressed the most about that question to me <laughs> Of course, because you've read so many books. I'm like, how do I choose? So, but
0: anyway, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing. And Mindy, thank you for your time. I know you're very busy, as we all are. And I really appreciate just you being the first one back as I get back into the podcasting mode, which I've really missed. So, thank you for being a guest today.
1: I, I just, first of all, this was so fun. That time went so quickly. I can't tell you how happy I am to see your beautiful, healthy face in front of me. So you're a cherished friend and colleague. So I'm so glad you're doing this podcast.
0: Thank you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.